The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I am your guest host today, Linda House, the president of the Cancer Support Community, standing in for Kim Tebaldo. The Wellness Community and Gilda's Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at more than 100 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. Org. I'm really excited about today's episode, and I feel fortunate to be able to do this show every year about this time when we're talking about myeloproliferative neoplasms, or MPNs, myeloproliferative neoplasms, and we shorten it to MPN, as you can understand why. They are a group of blood cancers. We're going to learn much more about that today from our guests, but I'll tell you that there are only about 14,500 people in the United States diagnosed with an MPN each year, which is why this show is really so important to, to, to spread the word on this particular type of cancer. Each year, the cancer support community strives to shine the light on MPNs and to raise awareness and make sure that patients understand and their families where they can go for support and assistance for this rare type of cancer. And so this year is no different. Um, We will be hosting events throughout the United States on Thursday, September the 8th, which is MPN Awareness Day, and we would encourage our listeners to, to do so as well. So today to help us raise awareness on MPNs, we have several guests who will share their advice, their expertise, and really unique perspectives on a number of of topics. So the first guest today is Dr. Rajit Rampal, who is a hematologic oncologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City. And Dr. Rampal specializes in treating leukemia and myeloproliferative diseases. And he is also a specialist in researching new and innovative treatments for these types of cancer. Dr. Rampal received his MD and PhD in molecular and cellular biology at Stony Brook University, and he completed his residency at the University of Chicago Hospitals, fellowship at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and thank you for joining us today, Dr. Rampal. It's a pleasure to be here. Our second guest is Maureen Tyne. Maureen is a physician's assistant at New York Presbyterian Hospital, Whale Cornell Medical Center, also in New York City, right across the street from Memorial Sloan Kettering, where she works with outpatient leukemia services and focuses on finding effective treatments for patients with MPN. Maureen received her graduate degree in physician assistant studies from St. John's University and her undergraduate degree in biology from Cornell. Welcome to the show, Maureen. Thanks for having me. And then our third guests, three and four come as a package, Danielle and Carolyn Childress. Danielle and Carolyn are high school sweethearts who have been married now just shy of 50 years. 
Daniel is recently retired financial advisor where Carolyn worked by his side with him for much of that time. And together you have one daughter and a grandson. In 2008, Daniel was diagnosed with polycythemia vera, which is a type of MPN. And then it transitioned to myelofibrosis, which is another type of MPN, in 2009. And I understand that after undergoing treatment through a clinical trial in 2010, Daniel is doing very well today. So we're happy to have both of you on the show today and look forward to hearing your perspective on MPNs. Thank you very much. I hadn't thought about our uh, uh, length of time of being married in the terms of 50 years yet, but... Well, thank you for that. <laughs> well, you have plenty of advance warning to get a nice gift, Daniel. There you go. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> uh, call me Dan. <laughs> okay, Dan. So, Dr. Ron Paul, let's start with you. And for our listeners, just the word myeloproliferative neoplasm sounds daunting. Um, can you just break it down for us and explain what the type of cancers are and give us more information? Certainly. So, the myeloproliferative neoplasms are... Uh, cancers of, of the bone marrow. And the principal job of the bone marrow is to uh, create cells such as white blood cells that fight infection, red blood cells which carry oxygen, and platelets which are involved in clotting. And as the name suggests, the, the word proliferative, oftentimes these uh, um, disorders are uh, disorders that result in overproduction of certain cells. So for example, patients who have a disease called polycythemia vera, which is a type of MPN, have an overproduction of red blood cells. Uh, patients who have a disease called essential thrombocythemia, which is another type of MPN, have an overproduction of platelets. Um, all of these diseases can have overproduction of not just one blood cell type, but of, of other cell types. And I think it's, it's important to note along those lines that as the disease evolves, uh, sometimes people's blood counts uh, will start to fall into the abnormally low range. So maybe the best definition to use here is that these are disorders of the bone marrow that result in abnormalities in, in blood counts. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. And there are, more, there, there are more than one type of MPN, and you mentioned two of them. Um, mm-hmm. So can you just, just go through that again? So polycythemia vera is one, PV right. sometimes, right? Uh, essential thrombocythemia is, is a second. And, and the third is myelofibrosis, uh, which can be what we call primary myelofibrosis, where somebody presents and is diagnosed initially with uh, uh, myelofibrosis. Or there is a term called secondary myelofibrosis, where somebody has had either TV or ET uh, previously, which has turned into myelofibrosis. Um, I think one other point to make here is that there are some very rare types of MPNs which might be affecting some of the, the listeners out there and, and that might not get as much attention. But these are very rare things uh, such as chronic neutrophilic leukemia, chronic eosinophilic leukemia, and a, a disease called systemic mastocytosis. These are very, very rare things, but they all sort of fall within the family of myeloproliferative neoplasms. Great. And so you you heard me say in the introduction that there are about fourteen between fourteen thousand and fifteen thousand people diagnosed with an MPN in any given year. So given that this is such a rare cancer, how do patients sort of self-identify the need to be seen, and you know how are they typically diagnosed? 
So that, that's, that's a really interesting question. And I, and I have to say, probably the most common story that I, that I see when I'm uh, encountering a patient for the first time with the diagnosis is the patient went to go get routine blood work uh, you know, from their primary care physician and it was noted that they had an abnormality in their blood counts. Oftentimes, patients won't have symptoms, and, and I think that's an important thing to, to keep in mind. This is not often, or rather, I should say, this is not a disease that always presents with symptoms. Oftentimes, it presents just with an abnormality in somebody's blood counts, and that leads to further workup and to diagnosis. Now, that being said, there are patients who do present with symptoms. Sometimes patients with polycythemia vera, for example, will present with itching or fatigue. Uh, sometimes patients with myelofibrosis uh, will present with symptoms such as unexpected weight loss or an increase in their size of their abdomen uh, or uh, muscle aches. So there can be a, a wide variety of symptoms that one can have, but none of them are, are specific, I would say, for MPNs. So, Daniel and Carolyn, Dan, sorry, Dan, um, let's bring you into the conversation and share with us your story. How were you diagnosed? When were you diagnosed? What led you to the physician? Just share, share all of that with us. Well, uh, I was diagnosed originally with PV in uh, 2009. Um, and I had not uh, exhibited really, I, I had had some of the symptoms, but I didn't recognize them as symptoms of these diseases. I had had some itching when I would get wet. I had some night sweats. Um, I didn't really recognize fatigue, but I didn't recognize any of those symptoms uh, as anything unusual. I, you know, we live in Charleston, and, and it's not unusual to get hot and sticky and, <laughs> you know, things like that. So, um, but I had noticed a mass. In, uh, in my upper left quadrant, and being a guy, I really didn't say anything about it, and this had been going on for a good while until one day it kind of tugged on my backswing, and so I figured I better uh, tell somebody about it. So, uh, yeah, when I was uh, on the driving range. And so I told Carolyn, and, and uh, she made sure I got to the doctor bright and early the very next morning, and, of course, he turned white, and he got me to the oncologist, hematologist real quick, and it turned out, of course, that it was an enlarged spleen. And, uh, and I, I was diagnosed with uh, PV. wasn't a, a huge deal. You just, you know, have phlebotomies, and, and that tends to take care of it. Uh, about a year and a half into that, uh, we had a change. Uh, you know, I broke out in this uh, heavy acne rash all over my face and head. And so my uh, hematologist uh, suspected uh, that it had changed, uh, but he wasn't sure. Uh, at that same time, a, a drug study had opened, uh, and one of the study sites was here in Charleston at the Medical University. So he managed to get me in that study, and that was pretty miraculous because it opened as soon as my, my diagnosis changed, and it closed as soon as I got in the study, and I was the only person in this study site in the study. And so I I had all these special people all to myself, <laughs> so it was pretty good. But um, uh, as soon as we started taking uh, a pill, I didn't know if it was a placebo or a drug, uh, the, the two nights later, 
we were playing uh, what I refer to as our most frequent bedroom game, which is, can you feel my spleen? And uh, Carolyn, her eyes got wide, and she said, I can't feel it. So we got to the doctor's office two days later, and he said, what's going on? And I said, well, before I tell you, I want you to examine me. So he laid me on the examining table, started to put his hands on my abdomen, and as soon as he touched me, he threw his hands back, said, holy crap, (laughs) a new medical term. And he either said, you're on the study drug, or that's one H of a placebo effect. So... Hmm. So that was kind of my, my path to, to myelofibrosis. It was PV, then it changed to myelofibrosis, and then I was able to get into the uh, drug study for, for, for what became Jackify, and, and it has just been uh, very miraculous since that point. Mm-hmm. And so just uh, quickly as we move into um, a, a, the commercial break, uh, Dr. Rampal, would you say that his story is pretty typical in terms of the way most patients are diagnosed? I would say absolutely. You know, as as Dan was saying, a lot of this was very vague symptoms, and it really wasn't until the blood work was was done and the the spleen was felt that there was a, a presumption of of something being wrong here. So, yeah, I think that is a very typical story. Mm-hmm. Reinforcing the need to make sure and get regular checkups. No question. Yeah. Well, this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's show is sponsored by the Insight Corporation. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but we will hear more from our guests when we return. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help, but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I am your guest host today, Linda House, filling in for the CEO of the Cancer Support Community, Kim Tebaldo. We are here today with Dan Childress and his wife, Carolyn, and they have been living well with an MPN diagnosis for several years. Dr. Ranjit Rampal, from, who is a hematologic oncologist from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and Maureen Tyne, who is a physician's assistant at New York Presbyterian Hospital, also in New York City. And Maureen, we are now coming to you to help us really understand um, managing the patient. And we've heard a little bit about how the, uh, the disease is diagnosed and, you know, some of the early symptoms that may or may not occur. But when patients do present to you with symptoms, you know, what are you, what are you seeing and how are you managing those symptoms? Well, I think as you've probably heard from both Dr. Rampal and from Dan, there isn't a one-size-fits-all for these particular diseases when it comes to symptoms and presentation. And so really every patient has a very personalized treatment plan. Um, for most patients, their physician is going to have a whole ancillary team that might include somebody like me, a PA or a nurse practitioner and social workers and nurses and just a whole group of folks who are going to focus on whatever the particular symptoms are of that patient. In my practice, I'd say that fatigue is probably the thing that patients complain about the most. It, it probably affects the most number of patients. And, and sometimes it can be one of the toughest symptoms to treat. You know, one person's fatigue is not the same as the next person's fatigue. So I think establishing, for that example, establishing a good rapport with your medical team and being able to really communicate how your symptoms are changing and how whatever we try to make them better, how that's working. Um, some symptoms have very specific treatments. Like, for example, if a patient with one of our MPNs has a history of a clot, a clotting disorder, they may be taking some sort of anti-clotting or blood thinning medication that would be specifically treating that. There are plenty of other symptoms, though, that are not so specific to treat and can be a little bit trial and error um, or are going to be managed more by treating the underlying disease. And, and so, so talk to us just a little bit about the care team, because you mentioned a couple of different roles. So you mentioned a nurse practitioner. You mentioned your role, which is a physician assistant. So as, you know, our listeners are, you know, sort of thinking about, you know, their own care settings, you know, just explain a little bit about those roles, and is there a preferred person that they should go to with their symptoms, or you all work together as a multidisciplinary team? So definitely the latter. We are definitely a team, um, and I would tell patients, and I do tell my patients, talk to whomever you're comfortable talking with. Patients in most of the major academic centers are probably going to be forced to be seeing lots of different types of practitioners, the, the physicians, the PAs, or the NPs, the nurses, the social workers. Again, we may even have nutritionists, I'm sorry, nutritionists involved in their care, um, And in patients who are seen in a more community-style setting, they may only have, you know, one or two of those different players. But talking to to your providers, your whole team, or someone on your team about your symptoms is really the most important. Communication is really the key here. Mm -hmm. 
And what tips would you give our listeners as they think about how best to communicate what they're feeling um, to their healthcare team? Well, some of the tips we've given to our patients um, are simple things like keeping a diary or making a list of the things you want to talk about before you come into your appointment. It sounds silly, but you'd be surprised how much you manage to forget the minute you walk in the doctor's office door. Um, So keeping a diary and kind of knowing how you've been feeling over the past couple of weeks since your previous visit would be super helpful for both you and for your care team. Another tip I sometimes tell patients, they, they often have a pretty good handle of how they feel internally, but I encourage them also to talk to either their spouse or their family or friends to see how those people are observing the patient's daily activities. You know, if you feel, if you think you feel fine, but your spouse says, you know, you've been napping more than you used to, or your friends say, you know, you used to meet us for lunch two or three times a week, and now it's more like once every other week, maybe that gives you a clue about that things are changing and you might not have necessarily recognized it. And then is there any certain way that they, they would best communicate that? I mean, are there any, you know, standardized forms or email communication, just whatever works best for them? A lot of physicians these days do have email. It's good that you brought that up. Um, certainly, the old-fashioned call into the doctor's office is always welcome. And, of course, at your, at your official visits, you have the opportunity to talk face-to-face with your team. There are some, some tools that have been developed, though, to help patients uh, track their symptoms in the off time when they're at home. Um, for example, there's something called the MPN10, as in the number 10, uh, self-assessment form, uh, which goes through some of the most common symptoms that can affect patients with MPNs. And patients can do this form at home, you know, on a weekly or a monthly basis to sort of track how those symptoms are getting better or worse over time. It's a really simple form. You just rank your symptoms on a scale of 1 to 10. So you can bring that paper in with you to your appointments, and it might help your doc understand how things might be changing. Great, great feedback. So, Dan and Carolyn, whichever one of you want to answer this, I'd love to hear from your perspective, you know, how you, you best communicated with your healthcare team, either, you know, during the time that you were actively being treated or, or now, today. Well, uh, whenever I was first on the study, I was required to do a, a log where I would log in uh, the exact times that I took my drugs, and I would do a diary at the end of uh, every evening. Uh, I'm long past the study now, but I have tended to keep up that practice. So where I keep my medicine, I have a sheet of paper with a form, just a simple form, uh, that has the, the dates, and and I just log in the time of day that I that I take my drugs. And also I have a note section. So uh, it's just very simple to to say, okay, on a given day if I have felt you know, a little bit of itching that day, for example, then I can just write itching and put, you know, 1 through 10. You know, if it was a a little bit severe, I might put 5. If it was very light, I might put 1. Or if on one particular day I had some fatigue or something like that. Uh, So I do it, uh, you know, a little bit actively but on a passive basis. I don't try to log in every day every symptom. But if I have a particular symptom that I, that I feel is, is noted that day, uh, I can note it on that form. Uh, and then I, I notate when I take my drugs. It's, it's very interesting. I've, 
I'm taking this drug that's saving my life, and you wouldn't think you would ever forget to do that. But, <laughs> you know, it's very easy to forget. So if I don't stay on top of that, uh, of that log, uh, you know, I can, I can forget the drug every once in a while. Mm-hmm. And, and keeping a record of what might be minor things or minor, minor issues, you never know. Once you go back to your doctor for the appointment, you know, you might need to uh, mention those because you never know that those might be leading to some change that the, your physician would want to know, and that might help him, you know, treat you further. Yeah, and Dr. Ron Paul, you may have an opinion um, on this, but, I, you know, one of the things that I always tell patients is that by them bringing you what's going on with them outside of the time that they're with you in the clinic is really not bothering you per se because I know a lot of people, you know, feel like they don't want to be a burden to their physician, but it's really very helpful for you to have a full picture of what's going on with the patient and the family. There's no question about that, you know, because it's, I think the point that was made earlier about, you know, how how are the symptoms or the diseases affecting the, the very normal things that one might do and, and that one might not think about on a daily basis, that often is more telling than just asking the question, how are you feeling today or are you fatigued? So I think that's incredibly important. Mm-hmm. And, and so, what, you know, sort of on this theme of, you know, patients who have been, you know, diagnosed and in, in, in their communication with you, um, Dr. Ron Paul, talk to us just briefly about the different ways that you have today to treat MPNs and maybe how has that evolved over the last five or ten years? So, absolutely. I, I think that, you know, um, as we've been talking about, one size doesn't fit all, and there are so many different treatments uh, for these diseases, some of which are, are relatively ancient, meaning things as simple as an aspirin, and things that are very much cutting edge, uh, like Jacophy, for example. I think, you know, it's it's sort of important, I think, for, for the patients and listeners to keep in mind that the treatments for these diseases have evolved very rapidly. We have to keep in mind that, you know, the mutation that uh, underlies a lot of these diseases, a, a mutation called the JAK2 mutation, was only discovered in 2005. And as uh, as you've heard from Dan, by 2010, he was on a clinical trial of a drug to, to target that mutation. Uh, that's an incredibly small amount of time, and that should give some hope, I think, to patients about how quickly we might be able to move things forward. You know, the the type of disease and the severity of it really dictate, um, you know, the types of treatments that we use. So oftentimes for young patients or younger patients with ET, uh, we will just advise that they take an aspirin and, and do nothing more than that. Um, Patients with polycythemia vera, uh, sometimes we will only treat them with phlebotomies, as, as Dan had talked about earlier, but sometimes patients need um, treatment that lowers their blood counts a little bit more aggressively, and that can be things like a drug called hydroxyurea, which is a pill that lowers blood counts. Um, there's a drug that is called interferon that's been used now for many years. Uh, a lot of the work, pioneering work in that was done uh, at Cornell. And, um, you know, that's a drug that also seems to uh, lower the blood counts and maybe have effects on the disease biology. Um, and then, you know, we get into sort of the newer drugs, uh, such as Jacophy, um, which is what we call a JAK inhibitor. There are a couple of cousin drugs to it now that are 
in development and in clinical trial. None of them have been approved by the FDA for use, so the only way to get to them is, is by a clinical trial. And that has really been the mainstay of therapy for myelofibrosis, you know, for the last, uh, I would say, several years, and also for polycythemia vera. And now we're getting into a newer class of drugs. There's a newer drug called imatelstat, which is a drug that's actually uh, shown in some small number of patients to put myelofibrosis into remission. Uh, and there are clinical trials of that ongoing. So I, I think, you know, the bottom line is that we, we have a broader array of tools now than we did a few years ago. And in all likelihood, we're going to have an even broader uh, arsenal of drugs in the next couple of years. Yeah, thank you for that. And we're going to run to a quick commercial break, but I want to really pick up when we get back about how patients work with their healthcare team to choose the best treatment for them. So this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is about living well with an MPN, a myeloproliferative neoplasm. Today's show is sponsored by the Insight Corporation, and we will be right back after this quick break. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices. I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I am your guest host today, Linda House, standing in for Kim Tibaldo, who will be back with you next week. And I'm so excited to be doing this show today because it is our annual show on myeloproliferative neoplasms. And today we are joined by a host of individuals who have been bringing to us very different perspectives on the experience from diagnosis to treatment to living with an MPN. And before the break, Dr. Rampal, we were talking to you about all of the new treatments that are available for patients and how really in the last few years there become a lot of options. Could you just give our listeners some advice on how they really work with you? So if you're a patient or a caregiver, what is the best way to work with you or to work with Maureen and her team on how to choose what is really the best option for them? Sure, yeah. So, you know, I, I think that 
The, the, the first principle always is that just because we can do something doesn't mean we should do something. And, and I think that we always have to balance the risks and the benefits uh, versus the potential side effects uh, uh, that we can occur by getting a treatment. And, you know, um, along those lines, if we have more than one option, you know, to give uh, for a certain disease we have to talk frankly about what are the potential side effects that we might encounter and what are the things that are more worrisome to a patient and what are the things that are less worrisome. Oftentimes, you know, I think that uh, patients are very well armed with information and and they come to a visit to talk about their treatments with concerns about certain things that they have read or or excitement about certain things that they've read. And I think it's really important to have a very open uh, honest discussion about uh, both fears and, and potential sources of, of interest and excitement uh, when choosing a therapy. At the end of the day, we have to weigh all of these things very carefully. And I think that we are lucky enough at this point to have more than one choice in many cases. Maureen, I'm going to come to you, and let's, let's talk a little bit about how people live well whether they're on active treatment or whether they are going through what you call watchful waiting. And maybe you want to explain that first to our listeners and then, and then answer the question about you know, how, how, what helps them maintain as good of a physical and psychosocial health as possible. Sure. So as you heard Dr. Van Paul just mentioned, we have lots of options these days, which is great, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to treat every patient. And so the term watchful waiting is often used for the patients who are not actively being treated, but are being very carefully followed and being monitored closely by the medical team. Um, Sometimes this can be frustrating for patients because I feel like a lot of times with a chronic disease, you'd want to be the patient feels like they want to be more active and, and, and actively taking some sort of treatment, but that's not always the best option. And so uh, watchful waiting is, is the term for that. Um, as far as how to encourage them to, to sort of stay active and, and stay physically well during all phases of their treatment, um, I tend to use an age-old <laughs> saying, which is that a body in, sorry, that a body in motion stays in motion. Um, so, so basically, if you maintain your activity, if you try to stay as involved as you can with both your physical life and just your daily, your daily activities, this usually perpetuates more activity. Um, by sitting still and by becoming more sedentary, that tends to beget more of a sedentary lifestyle, and, and people often feel more fatigued in that setting. And so let's talk a little bit about the social and emotional health um, for for patients. And, you know, especially, you know, we hear from patients that are sort of in the watchful waiting phase that they feel like um, there's something going on with them physically, but n- but nothing physically is being done for them. And so what, what pieces of advice do you have for for those people who might, you know, want, want to have more done? And there are very valid medical reasons for not for not doing more. Sure. It it can be very frustrating for patients, I I know, and I share their frustration. Sometimes you want to use your your toolbox, so to speak, but um, we have to remember that there's a time and place for for everything, and sometimes it actually is better for the patient and and healthier for the patient to not be 
using every weapon in the arsenal right up front, sort of save some things for later. Um, but as far as their, their emotional health and their social health, um, I think that having a good team around you is, is definitely part of the picture. I'm sure that Dan and Carolyn will, will tell us that this is a team sport. <laughs> having a, a chronic disease like this, it really is more of a, of a group effort than it is just one person's effort. Um, I think it's important for patients not to feel isolated. And that's a, that's a really big term. I mean it in a lot of ways. I, I don't want people to feel like a hermit. I don't want them to get, you know, stuck in their homes and not feeling as, as out and social as they, as they might have used to be. Um, but I also think that there is this component to this being a rare disease or a collection of rare diseases that isolation um, is a whole different picture. You know, it, it's hard to have a disease that no one else has ever heard of. So, um, so that can definitely gang up on people. Mm-hmm. Well, and we hear from people as well that they don't look sick. So, right. you know, they may have experiences of, you know, parking in the handicapped spot because they might be a little fatigued, like you had, had mentioned, um, and, mm-hmm. and, and a whole new set of, of thoughts that come along with, well, you don't really look sick. Absolutely. I think that's a really tough picture for people. They, they often, like you said, they don't look like a cancer patient. They're not, they haven't lost their hair, for example, most of the time. And they're not, they just don't look ill. But that, that really does belie the amount of, of sickness and, and, and the number of symptoms that people can feel internally. So it is, it is very misleading that their outward appearance remains so good. For a lot of patients, I know they tell me that they're almost insulted when their family and friends tell them how great they look. And they say, well, but I'm feeling terrible. How can it be that I look so good? Maybe they're just being polite to me. But that's, that's part of the dichotomy of these diseases. So, Dan and Carolyn, why don't you pick it up from there and help us really understand what your experience has been like as you've you know, had to live through some of the things that we're talking about during your journey? I, I think uh, Maureen said it very succinctly, talking about it being a, a team sport. And initially, uh, I have a very strong faith, and so I know God is involved in this process, and that has given me such amazing comfort. But then the extended family that that has given me, our church group, and me uh, taking on the position that I'm not going to be isolated, as Maureen was talking about. I'm going to be an open book and share with these people everything that's going on in my life has given them the ability to just rally around me and to support me and give me comfort, and that has been huge. Um, Carolyn has been huge. I mean, she is, uh, she is the epitome of a caregiver, uh, and, and, you know, from everything to you know, cuddling with me at night to managing the financial affairs to make sure that all the, the health institutions aren't making mistakes. <laughs> you know, it's, a, uh, it's just very important to have, have this huge team around you that understands what's going on in your life. Um, I also think there's a very important issue. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a, a planner by profession, and maybe this comes from, from my professional experience and training, but I tend not to react until all the, fla- all the facts are in. So it's very important whenever you get these kinds of diagnoses to not let your brain run ahead of reality. Um, and, uh, and, and, and the team around you can be so supportive and keep you from doing that. Uh, and the, and the, the last thing in that vein for me is um, 
I have tended to run to joy and try to stay in a state of joy. So if I'm, if I'm doing something, if I'm sitting on the deck, you know, looking out at the beautiful scenery, and if that's giving me joy, I'm going to sit there. <laughs> I'm going to mm-hmm. enjoy that as long as it's enjoyable to me. So whatever, whatever is giving me pleasure uh, and joy, uh, I need that. And so I recognize that and I embrace it. Good, good advice. And Dr. Rampal, I wanted to go back to you. Just as you, you know, think about, again, the way in which the landscape of MPNs has changed over the past 10 years. You know, would you say that people are more aware of this group of cancers than they were before? And do you feel like that, you know, either lack of awareness or increased level of awareness, does that impact the overall patient experience? Yeah, so so I, I definitely think there has been more awareness uh, both in the medical community and also in the patient community about these diseases, and that in part I think is owing to some of the success we've seen with with ruxolitinib. You know, I think that any time in, in cancer when we have a drug where we see promising results, uh, there is naturally attention drawn to that drug, but also to the disease to which it treats. Um, you know, I think that the the attention that has been drawn to this certainly does have some impact in really two ways. One is that we increase the awareness of a disease. That increases the ability to obtain resources like funding for, uh, you know, uh, clinical trials and also preclinical studies, and that's a really important aspect uh, because if there is a disease that nobody's really heard of and nobody has anything invested in, it's very difficult to make progress. The second part it might be the more important part, which uh, it, to, to sort of uh, build off of a point Maureen made, it's very difficult to have a disease in isolation, you know. It's it's very uh, anxiety provoking for a patient to be given a diagnosis, and and not have anybody to talk to who can relate to their situation, and I think by building awareness, both from the medical side of things, but also from patient support groups and patient advocacy groups, that completely changes uh, how I think patients experience their disease and how they deal with their disease. And Maureen, is there anything that you would add to that just in terms of how raising the awareness of MPNs can help patients? I think that Dr. Rampal and Dan have have really said it best. I mean, the more people know, the less scary the disease becomes and the less fearful they are of the treatment options. And certainly the more people who know about the disease, the more support that's available for patients who, who are diagnosed. So I'm fully in support of the of the information that's been coming out over the past few years, helping to educate both my fellow medical colleagues and also my patients. I think it's fabulous. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. And we are going to run to a quick commercial break, and then we'll come back with our final segment of Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's show is sponsored by the Insight Corporation, and we will return right after this commercial break. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. 
Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the AZI Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I am your guest host today, Linda House, and we are coming up on our last segment where we're talking about MPNs, myeloproliferative neoplasms. And I'm so sad that this is our last segment because it's one of my favorite topics. So I want to just quickly jump to our guests and talk about, you know, really more of the experience, where patients can go for support, what advice that you would um, offer our listeners today as they're either beginning their journey, in the middle of their journey, or have been in their journey for a while. And Dan, I'm going to reach back out to you, and I know that your wife is sitting next to you, and we've heard from her a little bit. And you mentioned in the last segment, I believe, uh, and I think you called her the ultimate caregiver, that she's really been an amazing caregiver for you throughout the experience. And, you know, Carolyn, I would love for you to share with potential caregivers who are listening to the show today, you know, what really has the impact been on um, you and, you know, how can you be a really effective caregiver for your loved one? Well, of course, the initial impact uh, of getting the news was a a huge emotional toll, uh, devastation and really disbelief. You know, I had to try to get past the disbelief that uh, being told by a doctor that I would lose my husband of 40 years was extremely difficult. And that's what he said, you know, without proper treatment, um, you know, you're going to lose your husband in a very short time. Um, And I don't think I ever really came to grips with that because that's something you really just can't describe. Uh, And it sounds selfish to say, but between the time we saw the, the clinical trial doctor and the time that he actually started on the medicine, um, it was a difficult time, and, and I hate to say it, but I would, I would get so upset because even though Dan was the patient and he had been told he had this fatal disease, um, I, I was told that I was going to lose my husband, my life partner, the person I had been with for 40 years, and that was difficult. So I would find myself during that period crying, and Dan would have to comfort me. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we went through a little 
a spell of that. And I thought, well, isn't that terrible? He's having to comfort me. But then I had to get practical and I had to get sensible. And in our case, we immediately, as mentioned before, we immediately had information about a clinical trial slash drug study program that was being done for Dan's particular diagnosis, which is uh, myelofibrosis. And uh, that gave us hope. Uh, And we clung to that hope. Uh, Hope is extremely beneficial. And again, on the practical side for a caregiver, um, go to the doctor appointments with the patient. Um, As Maureen mentioned earlier, uh, I totally agree that, you know, you have all these thoughts and questions while you're at home, but then when you get to the doctor, you forget. And so uh, a caregiver, you know, if you're there with the patient, you can ask the doctor questions uh, that the patient might have not remembered or even thought about. You can get a better feel for the treatment plan and what your role should be. Um, uh, Ask questions, of course. You know, ask any questions. If the doctor can't answer them, he'll tell you, you know. Um, But uh, on another practical side is stay on top of, as Dan mentioned, stay on top of the medical bills and the insurance claims because if you get... Uh, if those get all confusing and, and messed up, then that's going to lead more frustration for the caregiver, and then you're not going to be uh, top-notch to take care of the patient. Um, but my most, I think my most um, important suggestion would be uh, check out clinical trials. Um, the, those are wonderful things. They're on top of uh, studying new medicines uh, all the time. Uh, I can't say enough about the research and development programs that's going on because that's what saved Dan's life. And so I would just suggest, you know, checking out clinical trials for sure. Mm-hmm. And so as, as, as you were going through this experience, where did the two of you go for information? Where did you seek your information? Well, we were very fortunate in that whenever his regular uh, hematologist, oncologist, uh, suspected that his polycythemia vera had transitioned into myelofibrosis, we were fortunate in that that particular physician knew that they had just started the clinical trial here in our own city at the Medical University of South Carolina, and he got us in touch with the uh, physician that was heading up that drug study. So we were able to contact that physician, and again, we were so fortunate that it was right here in our own town. Um, So we contacted him, got an appointment, and uh, went from there. But, you know, also, uh, given our modern age, uh, you know, the computer, Internet, Google, they are full of just wonderful information, so many sites that you can access. And, And some people think about that as just an overload of information, but to me... It, it, was, it really uh, gave us confirmation of a lot of the things we were hearing and led us to other areas of, uh, and avenues of questioning and that sort of thing to help us be a little bit more aggressive in how we were taking care of our own care. And I think that's so important in today's modern, complicated world. You, you cannot be passive. You've got to manage your affairs uh, yourself. You've you got to drive the process. We've, we've been blessed to have a lot of uh, wonderful practitioners that care for us and are very diligent, but it's complicated and things fall through the cracks. So, so you've got to be on top of that. And, and the caregiver, 
unfortunately, that, that falls mostly to the caregiver. And, uh, and so having a diligent caregiver is just, I just can't stress enough how important that is. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Rompal, when you, you know, when you hear Dan and Carolyn talk about resources, where do you encourage your patients to go for additional information? So I think there's actually a number of really uh, good sites, both for medical information, but also for uh, patient support. And I'll, I'll point to a couple of things, but this is um, by no means an exhaustive list. I think the uh, MPN Research Foundation has a lot of excellent information on their website uh, about the diseases themselves, but also it does have a listing of uh, clinical trials that might be available. And I think that, that's an important resource for patients who are both newly diagnosed and those who are in need of, of further therapy. Um, there are a number of important patient uh, support groups that are out there, and one in particular that I've, I've been fortunate to work with is uh, a group called MPN Advocacy, uh, which sponsors events throughout the country whereby uh, physicians uh, and, and others involved in, in MPN research or, or patient care are able to speak directly with patients who might not otherwise have access uh, to somebody who uh, deals with MPNs quite frequently. Those are uh, two among many resources that I, I've often pointed patients towards. Great. Thank you. And Maureen? Yes, I can add a... <laughs> Go ahead. Yes, I can add just a couple other um, places for general information. Um, certainly patients who see doctors like Dr. Rampal or or patients who come to my clinic have the have the good fortune of having big city academic places where there's often a lot of information right in the doctor's office. Um, I have previously worked in a less populated, more community care setting where patients are relying more on the internet. I think that's probably true of many of your listeners. Um, in addition to the sites that Dr. Rampal mentioned, both of which are really excellent, there are some general places for medical information, which is quite it's quite valid. Um, places like the Leukemia Lymphoma Society, which has a separate page um, for myeloproliferative neoplasms, and even a general site like the Mayo Clinic website. Um, also, of course, your own, the cancer support community has been very much involved with, uh, with making sure patients have a resource for, especially when they have a rare disease like this. Yep. Thank you. And I'm going to take, I'm going to take the, the microphone back just to also remind listeners of, of, of a resource that the cancer uh, support community has called the Cancer Experience Registry. And I just want to raise that because we have this Cancer Experience Registry for patients, and we also have a Cancer Experience Registry for caregivers. And it is the opportunity for the patient and the caregiver to share with us what their journey is like, and we use that information to create new programs and services and also provide um, information for them throughout the, the, the period of time that they're member of that community. So I want to be a little selfish and, and also mention that um, as we move to a close. So thank you to our listeners for joining us today. Thank you to our guests for sharing this wealth of information. And um, I, I, I really can't thank you enough for, for all that you're, you're doing for, for the patients. So um, we hope that you will be back with us someday and, and not wait until next year when we do the MPN show um, to, to, to have this conversation again. So thank you to the four of you um, on, on the call today. Thank you. Appreciate thank you. the work that you do. Thank you. Thank you. 
And I will close by thanking today's sponsor, which is the Insight Corporation. To all of our listeners, again, thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I am your guest host, Kim Tebaldo. will be back with you. And as we've mentioned, the Cancer Support Community has a multitude of in-person, online, and over-the-phone support services. If you or someone you know is facing a cancer diagnosis, remember that you do not have to do it alone. For more information about our programs, visit us at www.cancersupportcommunity.org, where we also do link to a number of the partners that were mentioned on the show today. We also have a telephone helpline where you can speak with a licensed mental health professional Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Time, and that number is 888-793-9355. Please remember that all of our services are provided free of charge. Until next time... Be well, do well, live well, and to steal from Dan today, embrace joy. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.